Hi, I'm Fred Schonenberg, and thank you for joining me on the Venture Fuel podcast. At Venture Fuel, we help companies find new solutions by partnering with the best startups from around the world. On the show, you'll learn the secrets of business leaders who tap into startups and the founders driving extraordinary results. We'll consider new ideas, stretch our mindsets beyond the status quo, and in the process, discover how to leap the competition and fuel personal growth. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have a very special episode. This is taken from our live event series, What's Next Now? We put together an all-star panel around data innovation. We have folks from Insights at Instacart, U.S. Insights and Analytics at Mondelez, as well as the founder of Burbio, coming together to talk about the fact that this always-on stream of consumer behavior, market trends, and micro-insights can actually lead to macro results. So let's get after it. Thank you all for joining. What's Next Now uh, is Venture Fuel's tagline as well as our event series. And it's an interesting progression. Uh, it started off as what is next, comma, now. What's next is now. We've been playing with it. And what's interesting is now it's all together. And the reason is believe that the comma actually doesn't work anymore. You can't take a pause in innovation. Everything is moving so fast. It's so accelerated. And what is what we think of of what's next is actually happening now. And so this series is bringing together thought leaders across different categories to examine whatever the subject is. And I can't think of any industry that has become more disrupted, advanced more quickly than data. And I know that's a big sort of term, right? There's a lot of ways to interpret it. But what we've been thinking about, I launched Venture Fuel eight years ago. And at that time, corporate and startups were sort of two different languages, two different worlds. And as we saw, because of access to information, access to capital, access to consumers, startups began accelerating really quickly. And it was a lot easier to start and scale a startup, which then made them disruptive. And at the same time, as a, a large company, it became harder to pivot and try new things. And so we saw some magic in bringing those two worlds together. So we believe our whole business is built around this idea of larger industry leaders and startups coming together to partner and collaborate to drive both companies forward. And so that's what we're looking at today is ways to new solutions to unlock growth. And as I mentioned, data is being used by large companies and startups together in, in so many different ways. I've got a couple of examples here. Uh, this is McDonald's. They purchased, they actually acquired Dynamic Yield. And the idea here is as you go through the drive-through, right, there's all sorts of data there, whether it's time of day, whether it's type of car, whether it is your pastime through that drive-through. That data is happening and then applying machine learning to it enables them to provide more value to the customers. And I think at the end of the day, everything we're going to talk about today is that piece, is how do you provide more value to the customers, which then can increase basket size or purchasing. Another good example is as new technology evolves in other areas, SiteAware is actually a drone company that specializes in real estate. And Heinz is a huge real estate developer. And what they're able to do is actually fly the drones around their buildings and look for mistakes, look to see that everything's on time, on target, report that back, check on weather, all those types of things. So as new technology emerges, new data streams become available. And the most progressive industry leaders are actually figuring out how to tap that and make that data actionable. Nike is always sort of at the forefront of this type of movement. They actually acquired a company called Datalog 
And their idea is actually taking data from multiple streams, which I know is going to be a big part of our conversation today, and digesting it, making it work across mobile, in-person, all the different places Nike plays, and then making that actionable, whether that is through marketing, whether that is through customer support, but really helping them tell a consistent story and be a better partner to their, their customers, whether that is retail stores or the end customer. And lastly, a company called Alfonso, we actually worked with them eight years ago when they first were launching. They just took an $80 million investment from LG. And I think it's a good example of large company and startup coming together in that they specialize in cross-screen media and measurement. So they know what you're watching on TV in real time. They know your mobile device, where you're going, and can kind of connect those pieces because anyone that buys television advertising knows there's a lot of waste in that space. And they're able to kind of connect the two screens as well as give really actionable insights on what people are watching. So those are just a couple ideas to kind of warm us all up for what we're going to talk about today. For anyone that is interested in this idea of startups and large companies coming together, there are two reasons for it usually. Uh, One is value creation, which is what I just talked about. The other is disruption insurance. And this idea that it's better to collaborate now and use this to your advantage rather than dealing with it uh, down the road as these companies get financing and become bigger. The other advantage is faster timelines, lower risk, and greater proximity to the consumer, which is what we're going to talk about today. So this will be in your viewing experience. There's a venture fuel deck. So if you'd like to learn more, we're very happy to chat with you about that. But without further ado, I am going to get out of the way and turn it over to this unbelievable panel. So Vanessa, take it away. Thank you, Fred, for that awesome presentation. So it's my pleasure now to welcome our guests for today. We have Christina Chiesa, U.S. Director of Insights and Analytics in the Cookies and Crackers portfolio at Mondelez. We have Marty Seward, Insights at Instacart, and Dennis Roche, co-founder of Verbio. We're going to talk more about what Verbio does and how it provides an innovative data as a service that has helped people navigate COVID-19 over the last year in terms of planning and execution. Um, The topic today is data. This is a huge conversation and it can take us in many directions. Our focus is really to understand how folks have been navigating because of digital transformation, the fact that there have been so many new data sources and what that's meant for the different applications and uses for data. Everything from measurement to customer analytics to product and service innovation. I'd like to start today with the question for Christina. Christina, you've worked in consumer insights for the past 20 years across some of the most iconic consumer packaged goods organizations, Johnson & Johnson, General Mills, Nestle, Purina. The data landscape has never been as dynamic as it is today. How do you continue to innovate and how do you think about incorporating new data sources into things like your measurement strategy, the frameworks that you use, and what does that mean for your team at Mondelez? Everything from how they work to how you structure them. Hi, Vanessa. Nice to be here. So you asked me a few questions in one, so I'm going to unpack. <laughs> I'm going to go one by one. And I think when we talk data, there's so much, you know, this is a big word. So I'm going to just be specific on the type of data that I'm talking about, you know, uh, to, to make things easy. So maybe the data that I'm going to talk about today is what we leverage to track campaign performance, right? Because that there is a lot of, you know, to your point, a lot of news around it, right? So I think, you know, data scale has been there for a while, right? The new data sources, 
have been there for a while and they bring a lot of interesting insights that we didn't have before. What I think is new today is the understanding of what matters and what doesn't, right? Not all data is good data. Not all metric is a good metric, right? And also our ability today to connect the dots. I mean, like Fred was talking about, you know, connecting people, understanding who they are across the screens, but also, you know, going from a screen and tying that viewer, that audience to actual purchases. So being able to connect the dots, that's very different, right? That's a, the key difference uh, versus, you know, just having the data scale that we've had for a while, but there wasn't, you know, much action, actionability uh, for a while. How we innovate. So I think that we innovate because there's still a lot of questions that the data that we have today does not answer, right? I mean, we are in a better place than we were before to measure campaigns and doing that in a reliable and agile manner. But there's still a lot of unanswered questions when it comes to how do you quantify emotion, right? Who exactly is watching what, right? We have proxies, right, for who is watching, but we don't know exactly sometimes who is watching what, what metric is and isn't predictive of a market outcome. So because a lot of the questions that we have, the industry does not have an answer for, what we do is we oftentimes partner with academia. So Cornell University has been a good partner for us uh, in the past few years in answer a lot of those questions, you know, on uh, measurement and how we become more agile in understanding uh, campaign effectiveness. We partner with Georgetown as well. So those are some of the ways that we innovate. I think that the last question that you asked me was about uh, the data sources, how we incorporate data sources. So again, what we've been doing is looking at the data that is available, the metrics that are available, and what is it, trying to validate what is and isn't predictive of the market outcomes. So just to give you an example, we looked at, um, for instance, social listening, we looked at sentiment, right? Sentiment is not as predictive of sales as, for instance, the volume of conversation or any type of active engagement when somebody has a comment, a like, you know, the sentiment is not predictive. Of course, there are some problems with the AI and the way things get classified or misclassified. But what we do is or we are constantly looking at what is available to us, search lift, tone of conversation, uh, and so forth, and understanding are those agile and good predictors of in-market outcomes, right? So based on that, we create frameworks that help us understand in a very quick manner if the content that we are putting out there is resonating with our intended audience and allows us to oftentimes make media and creative changes mid-flight. It's interesting, you know, because in your title and in the description of yours, it's learning agenda. And, and I think it speaks so beautifully mm-hmm. to what you're talking about, which is really learning about the consumer and the customer behavior. And none of these are steadfast. These metrics evolve. Uh, I recall mm-hmm. you know, five, six years ago, there was a lot of study around the fact that engagement didn't have correlation with in-market mm-hmm. performance. And now it does. And 
platforms are changing and the behavior of the consumer is changing as well. Yep. Thank you, Christina, for that. I'd like to take the next question to Marty. Marty, you've worked in insights and market research since 1999 across a variety of industry players, from Dole to moving to Nielsen, and then leading the Safeway engagement team there, and then moving to uh, AB InBev. And you know, you've really not only worked client side, but worked across a variety of the different organizations and institutions and sort of sides of consumer insight and research and understanding. My question for you is, how have new sources of data changed over time? And what's the opportunity at organizations like Instacart, and this is particularly around the shopper, for greater customer understanding to inform different parts of the business strategy? Thank you for the question. And uh, thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate having the opportunity to be here. You know, uh, piggybacking on what Christina was talking about, uh, the, the sources of information have really exploded, especially over the last 20 years. When I started in market research, in insights, you know, <laughs> one of the big questions I remember getting from clients was because it was mostly around sales tracking and understanding, you know, how performance was in different retail banners. And, you know, the, uh, the hot button issues were, well, we need more complete coverage. We need to understand our sales in places like vending machines and this and that. And then the internet came along, right? <laughs> so the world has become very digital. Everybody, nearly everybody has access to digital devices that allow them to interact with brands, interact with retailers and shopping experiences online. And so the basic question of, okay, how do I get my complete market view in terms of volume and share has become a lot more difficult. So the first order of things is really to understand what the total potential is in the marketplace in terms of what the sales are and what your share is and what the upside could be, and then move on from there. That's been really... Well, I've been focused on when I was in Anheuser-Busch. We certainly faced that. And, and now at Instacart. Also, you know, we have our own data set, but uh, it's been very interesting interacting with our clients at Instacart and, and answering their questions. I think what I would say is, and again, this is something, a thread that I'm picking up from Christina. You know, it's what's really important is you can't abandon old methods of how things data was collected or insights or especially the questions that were being asked. I think the questions are very consistent over time. It's how you answer them that has really changed. And so it really requires you to understand what these new data sources are, vet them to Christina's point, and understand how you can use them together. So I'll give you an example. This is from when we were at Anheuser-Busch together, Vanessa. So they, uh, one of the brands wanted to launch a new package. And so in the old world, a new machine needed to be purchased and they were just looking at which kind of new machine should we have new capabilities. So in the old days, like back in the 90s, um, what we would do is a controlled store test and we'd hire somebody to place the product, manage it, do the analysis, et cetera, et cetera. Those kinds of services almost don't exist anymore in the new world. So we had to figure out how we could execute this on our own. So engaging with a retailer partner, utilizing retailer loyalty data, again, I think traditional sources of information. But then what about, uh, so beyond ROI, was the package really having an impact for the brand? Because you know, from my perspective, the way a brand is displayed and activated in the store is probably the biggest advertising opportunity every single day that brands have. Number one parts of impressions, right? Yeah, exactly. So we wanted to understand the impact that it would have on the shelf. And so that required old school shopper intercepts. But 
then we wanted to go deeper uh, just beyond a 10-minute interview in the store and understand how not just the shoppers reacted in the store, but how did the package play out closer to the consumption experience? And so in order to do that, what we did is we, we partnered with a company to do this traditional research, but also you know, shoppers are very open. People are very comfortable with technology now. So we asked uh, uh, everybody and we were surprised how many people actually let us do this, but they allowed us to recontact them, send them a survey that they would take at home, film themselves over, you know, one to two hours as they answered these questions, opened their refrigerator, showed us how they interacted with the package. And as a result, uh, if we were just looking at the ROI, it would have passed muster. But with this additional information enabled by technology, and that was not just the video on the phone, but the ability to have these uh, transcriptions automated and have that analysis done using new technology, we were able to actually understand that there were even more improvements that we could make within the scope of the machine's capabilities that would make it an even better package for people and give them a better experience moving forward. And so that's really the upside of the new technology. It's about, you know, facing these same questions, but approaching it in a different way that helps you to bring the best of both worlds together and then, and then move forward. That's one example that, that comes to mind. I could, I could provide several more, but really it's about being open to the new sources, understanding what the question is, and finding the best path to answer those questions. Thanks, Marty. That's so interesting because this week, actually, on Monday, there was a great article in the Wall Street Journal that questioned, you know, in the era of big data, should we be doing qualitative research? And actually, the article was saying, yes, we need to combine all sources of available information. And even though big data might give you an idea or data might give you an idea of what the behaviors of consumers are around certain interactions with the brand, you need the qualitative to still flesh out truly in-depth insight. I love that. You know, definitely equity impact to the brand. I, I know there's also a lot of discussion now with so many data sources of looking beyond just the action, you know, the engagement, the click, the purchase. But how do we actually understand the equity impact of the brand of these things? So thank you for sharing that example. Dennis, I'd love to turn to you to talk a little bit about Verbio. Christina and Marty have both mentioned new sources of data and integration of new consumer signals. And things that might actually even be environmental signals that are shaping consumer behavior or reshaping consumer behavior. Verbio started as a community and event information aggregator. And I would love it actually as you answer this if you tell a little bit more about the Verbio story. But during the pandemic, you pivoted and became the definitive source for school opening with your school opening traffic. How do you work with clients to help them guide commercial investment, become more agile in their planning process? and execution of strategies by using a data source like Verbio's, which is going to tell you, you know, in the last year and a half, from day one to day two, the landscape has changed every day almost. So tell us a little bit about that. No, it's easy. Uh, can you hear me okay, Vanessa? Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, Verbio pre-COVID, Verbio was a community information service. Our business model was built around, think of us as like AccuWeather for community events. So we pull in 200,000 school, government, library, and community calendars from all over the country. And we work with media partners. We work with Microsoft, pulls our data into, into Office 365 for consumers, local real estate firms. So we were all about being timely and accurate about what was going on in the community. And we're a good example of alternative data and how we had to move into that. And we talked earlier about finding these new sources. When COVID hit, all of our community events were canceled. 
and a lot of what else was on our calendars were completely inaccurate. So that was sort of this moment where we said, okay, and our business model at a minimum was going to be stalled. And one of our investors said to us, well, suddenly the fact that nobody knows what's going on is to your benefit. And so we'll open up a whole new avenue of potential uh, business for you. And on our business plan, we'd always had as like the fourth or fifth bullet of things we might do in the future, business intelligence. We had every school calendar in America, K through 12. Well, someone's got to want to know what's going on in schools at a more micro level. Wouldn't that be great? Well, COVID shot that right to the front of the line for us. So we did a bunch of iterations. Because for the startups out there, for a moment, we really didn't have a product market fit. We had all this information, but we didn't know who was going to buy it. So we did all these iterations over measuring community life. And Vanessa, as you referenced, one of the things we built was a tool that tracks whether schools were open virtually uh, or only virtual learning for in-person or for hybrid. And we got some press and we started getting calls from consumer packaged goods companies as well as uh, we started doing work with academics, basically getting the information out there. And they literally said, we're trying to figure out whether school is open because it affects our sales. Can you help us? And that started, and of course, the answer was yes. And we started building various forms of data sets to be able to get them the information. And when we built the service, since we knew local so well, we built it from the bottom up. We always thought about a mom, in this case, or a dad with kids sitting in a town, how they were behaving. So our, our outlook was always about being very local. And so what we've done over the last year is in addition to things like whether schools are open, schools start, for example, in Florida in mid-August. They start in Massachusetts after Labor Day. We know exactly when every school starts across America. That information, as far as we are concerned, and obviously we're evangelists, should be everywhere in the consumer goods decision-making system, whether you're a supplier, whether you're a retailer, whether you're placing advertising. So we've been working with a lot of companies with regards to that. We can also mine our information. We know when there's a financial aid night. We know when people will for people in the travel industry because we know when their schools are going on vacation. And again, all of this is different. So I will say, listening to you guys talk earlier, I think one of the lessons is, is that there may be information out there if you're trying to solve a business decision. You know, we are firmly in alternative data. And, and I've always taken that to mean information that was being used for one reason can now be used for another, essentially. And for us, again, we built Burbio so that mom would know when there was an event at his her kid's school. And in reality, we think there's probably a lot more value in it to uh, the many companies whose businesses change based on what's going on. And obviously, it extends to everything else. So the first thing is search for. Our first couple of clients found us on search because we've been covered in the press. We were literally covered in the press and we were like, we're not really sure what's going to happen, but it can't be bad as being the smart people about this. And then people started calling us for that reason and they were looking. The other thing I would say sort of related to that is you may have vendors. We do get asked by our clients now, hey, can you also find this out? Hey, you, you do this. And there's this other thing that you could also find, and a good example is financial aid nights. We had a client, we're like, well, we don't really care. We don't really, I mean, school starts, that's not really important to us, but when's financial aid night? We're like, well, we can data mine our calendars and find that out. They're like, that would be really valuable to us. So asking vendors who you trust, you're going to get a yes from any sales rep to call on this. So you have to, you have to ask people you already know and work with what else they can deliver to you. You might be surprised, A, what they may already have or what they can build relatively 
So I think that's, that's for us, that's how we've gotten here. And we're literally iterating every week. It's interesting because also with, we're going to talk a little bit later on about hyperlocal and hyperlocal data with so much emphasis on customization or personalization of messaging, particularly on digital channels where you can do a lot of personalization, everything from when you're flighting your media to your creative. It's interesting to see that that data, the application of that data and the different use cases that you've shared with us. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about it later. I want to take the next question to Christina, you know, because you, you also, Christina, had talked about there are still some things that we don't know the answer to. There are still some questions and in our learning agenda strategy and attempt to understand customer and consumer behavior. What do you see? I mean, the digital transformation of culture and society has provided us with unprecedented access to behavioral consumer data. You know, when I started in, in marketing, we were looking at claimed behavior, not mm. actual behavior. And now we have so much more richness. What do you see as the greatest challenge facing insights professionals today in terms of you know, seeking to navigate and incorporate new consumer signals into their learning agendas? I think that the challenge is that... Well, three, I would say. The challenges are that to have data that is agile, right? Data that is reliable, right? That is indicative of in-market outcomes. And I think that a challenge as well that I see uh, more and more lately is remaining independent, right? Because I think that there is the desire, right, for when we are talking about mentioned media and creative, there is a lot of desire for companies to measure themselves, right? So a digital platform will come to you with a study that will say that they are great, right? (laughs) What's new? Amazon will come to you with a study that would say what? That Amazon is great. You know, so there is that desire. Oh, I have a brand lift that says that I'm so good. You know, I have have the sense that they say, oh my God, I'm so good. So what is important is remain independent, right? Make sure that you are looking at the right data, right? That you're looking at, you know, Measure early, measure often as well, right? So you're able to have a constellation as opposed to just one start to make your decision, right? So make sure you know that you remain independent, that you have data that is reliable, right? And that you know the value of every metric for the decision that you want to make. And if you measure early and measure often, that's the key uh, in my mind to agility. Because then, you know, when it comes time to a decision, you can make it very fast, you know, and uh, with very low risk, right? And you know, by agility, I mean, you mean that, the ability to move quick with speed, the ability, you know, in measurement in the past, you would often be waiting six to 12 weeks for any kind of outcome. Absolutely. I mean, uh, so for instance, the measures that, you know, sometimes we have like some, like, I'm not going to talk about brand lift because just brand lift we've been seeing, we saw for years and years that have not been predictive of in market outcomes. But even a brand lift that was considered agile, you know, it's like five weeks after the end of a campaign, a sales lift, you know, six, seven weeks after the end of a campaign. And that is for my categories that have a very short purchase cycle, very short. So that's not agile. That's why for us, you know, we had to make sure that we were validating other consumer signals like volume of conversation, search lift, 
the type of engagement that is more predictive, the comment, the sharing, that just to understand, okay, you know, what is most predictive of the market outcomes? How fast can we get, you know, all of this packaged in a way that we can make decisions, right? So yes, I mean, it is, that's for us what is, what is agile is being able to, in a campaign that is going to last six weeks, that you have a three or four week lead. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for explaining mm-hmm. that. Marty, I'd like to take the next question to you. You know, Christina, we're talking about brands mm-hmm. that are not digitally native brands, right? Cookies, crackers, my favorite, yes. Ahoy. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. but when we think about a brand like Instacart and a service like Instacart, I mean, this is digitally native, right? You have an incredible volume of data available, not just customers and what they're buying, but also what uh, your clients or suppliers have in stock, what their stock is. Uh, and how it's priced, what the replacements or alternatives are. I mean, there's just incredible. I was reading online to prepare for today, even the proximity of the store to the purchaser who's ordering, but also like the proximity to parking. I mean, like really like an ins- insane amount of information. And the platform, which has continued to grow since its launch in 2012, though, is utilizing this data in really interesting ways in providing innovative services. Like, I don't know if folks know, but during COVID, Instacart launched a senior support service because of the insight that there were a lot of barriers for seniors who were trying to shop, do virtual shop for the first time. And then also even innovations around payment methodology and how people could use SNAP or EBT to pay for Instacart services. You know, Can you talk a little bit about how Instacart thinks about innovative applications of data to identify those barriers to shop? and unlock new insights to develop new services and unlock new sources of growth? Sure, I'll do the best I can with what I can talk about. Big question. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a really good question. And I would say that it really starts with our mission. So Apoorva is very passionate about the mission of the company, which is to create a world where everyone has access to the food they love and have more time to enjoy it. And if you, if you keep that mission in the front of your head, in the front of your mind, it's not hard to understand what are the pain points that you need to solve, especially during a crisis like COVID. You know, last year in March, April, within in five weeks, we had five years worth of growth. So, and a lot of that was, if you look at it from the consumer's perspective, you know, you could classify it as kind of low hanging fruit. So people, you know, who weren't facing, you know, who had stronger incomes, stronger income streams, the ability to order online and pay the delivery fee and so on and so forth. But that is not everyone, right? And especially as we wanted to uh, expand access and opportunity, we really need to look at what those problems are. What, what are the barriers that are preventing people from accessing Instacart? So I think the senior support program is a great example. So we saw in... Well, I... I was at Anheuser-Busch when COVID started, right? And so we were seeing online, just from our own work that we were doing there, that more and more seniors were coming online. We didn't actually take it a step further to understand if they were buying or how much they were buying, right? And I think at Instacart, the people who were making these decisions saw, based on feedback, right? This is real-time feedback, that people were having an issue, right? So while... Uh, you know, I'll use my my stepdad. You know, getting my stepdad on the c- computer was fine if all we wanted to do was have him play solitaire, but we needed him to do other things, and so it was really just that personal touch. So technology can solve a lot of things, 
but you still need that personal touch like the senior support services. Similarly, with lower income households, you know, all of our retail partners are really excited about the fact that we've enabled this capability. There is a population that is underserved, that is lower income uh, because of EBT or SNAP payments and enabling that really provides access. Those households need that time as much as anybody. Those households need safe food delivery as much as anybody. And so keeping those are consumers in the forefront of our mind, not limiting the definition of everyone, <laughs> I think is really important. And it allows us then to focus on, you know, from a, a consumer standpoint, how do we continue to reduce those barriers? And that is really the focus. For our partners, it's a slightly different question. Of course, they want as many people to have access to their brands as possible. So uh, shopping online is different than shopping in the store. We know that it's not linear. Everybody shops differently, you know, but search is a huge component. And especially the way that digital devices are enabled these days with voice activation. So search is, is something that we continue to optimize. Search is something that we know can drive results for our partners. And we're, you know, we always are engaging with our partners on how consumers are navigating the site, how tools like search can help them to perform better. So uh, we really just re try to keep the focus on our end consumer in terms of the platform capabilities and our customers and the questions they have and how do we answer, answer those questions for them and provide them to Christina's point. And as soon, you know, as, as soon after a campaign ends as possible with the results so that we can understand what worked, maybe what, what didn't work as well, uh, and and make that plan to move forward, you know, kind of, and in the best situations, just classic A-B testing. So, you know, it's been exciting to be a part of this. And, you know, we've got a long road in front of us. We have so much data available to us. You were mentioning some things that, you know, I think we barely started scratching the surface with in terms of how we can utilize this to improve the experience for both our retail partners, manufacturer partners, as well as our end consumer. You mentioned campaign. You know, I don't know if folks know, but you can also, I mean, obviously end customers are have their inventory, but they can also run ad campaign on Instagram, which is really interesting, right? We talk about the dissolution of the line uh, back in the day, above the line, below the line, in-store, in media. I mean, now you have both, both together. Yeah. Right. Thank you for sharing that. We have some great questions coming from the Q&A. I want to just close out with one question to Dennis, and then we'll move to the questions from folks who are watching. Dennis, I, I just want to ask you this final question on hyperlocal. Why does hyperlocal matter? And what do you see as a future for Burbio as we enter, and I'm going to call it post-pandemic peak, because we're not really post-pandemic and we don't know for the foreseeable future if we ever will be. You know, Why does post-peak matter for... Sorry, let me rephrase. A post-pandemic peak world where the only certainty for advertisers is uncertainty in terms of commercial plans and the needs for customers and consumers. I will say one of the things coming into this market sort of with a fresh set of eyes, it did surprise me how not very local the word local is used. Because the local that we're in is someone who lives down the street from this organization or one town to the next. And COVID has actually illustrated that because we saw COVID mitigation was often changed by community based on how they felt and often local politics and the type of community that it was. And we would see this behavior 
And we believe this is really, really critical. But particularly as it relates to advertising, when you talk about what's happening with privacy and things like that, the more you can bring contextual signals like super local information about where someone lives and what they're doing to the table makes a big difference. And when I, again, when we say local, we mean town to town, zip code to zip code, not just parts of the country. So for us, that's really what we sit on. And there's lots of different ways to activate it from how you sell to your retailers, how retailers sell, and obviously how you advertise. So we think it should exist in all parts of the decision making process. So I'm going to move to questions that are coming from the audience. A question for Christina and Marty. Can you talk about the balance between privacy and insight? So obviously today we're talking about data. We actually haven't brought up privacy. And I think this is a great question. So I'll just read it. Talk about the balance between privacy and insight. Yeah, that's a great question, right? Because a lot of the new insights, the new learnings that we have today if I'm being super transparent, is because we have relatively weak privacy laws here, right? I mean, when I talk to my counterparts in Europe, they can't track people as they go from content to content, which is, you know, so kitcheny, right? I mean, I understand, I don't have often demographics on who is watching my ads, but I do know that person's interest and I have a proxy for who they are because I know what else they're doing online, right? Especially if they came to one of our properties, like, you know, our website or, inter, you know, entered for, you know, some of our contests and stuff, then, you know, it, it, I know a lot about that person. So I'm not going to say that the future of, you know, insights and analytics, you know, it's a, it depends on this because I think we were pretty smart about consumers before too, but a lot of the new learnings that we have and the agility that we have acquired in the past few years is predicated upon being able to uh, follow people around, you know, online. So as there is more legislation around, you know, cookies and so forth, I think that that would be an implication for us as well, you know, overall, right? I mean, not just my industry, but it's going to reduce our ability to target, right? Uh, And so forth. So there'll be implications across the board. And it's interesting to note, and you mentioned, and actually we talked about this a little bit when we Mm -hmm. first talked about this session today, we're Mm -hmm. having a very US-centric conversation right now. Mm -hmm. Um, We were having a data conversation about, you know, global or Europe, Mm -hmm. very different conversations. It would be very different. Mm -hmm. And Marty, I don't want to stop you from answering. I just wanted to acknowledge that because it is a very different landscape in other parts of the world. So Marty, Mm -hmm. how do you balance that? Ah, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, fortunately at Instacart, you know, the, the data that I'm working with is really first party data. We own the data. We have the ability to utilize it. Now, uh, what does restrict it is our agreements with retailers in terms of how we're able to utilize it. And, you know, it is a balance to what Christine was saying. At the end of the day, you know, the reality is that privacy laws are going to get more restrictive within the U.S., mm-hmm. Uh, the more we can learn from outside of the U.S., even Canada, you know, how Canada approaches problems or answering questions is going to be beneficial. And so I think that, you know, we've had, for lack of a better term, a, a, a pretty much a free lunch up until now in terms of being able to utilize individual level data and tracking. But we just have to look to new, new ways of finding the right approximations correlations, and ultimately do a better job of serving the end consumer and user. So because 
First-party data is always going to give you the richest data set. So when you get that permission to do it, because you are offering a value proposition to the consumer that makes them want to participate because they see the value in it, then you know it's going to change the dynamics, of course, but it's also going to make companies more consumer-centric. Great point. Another question for Christina. What are some interesting startups in data or consumer insights? So startups in data or consumer insights. And how does Mondelez partner with them or with others? We partner with, with a few startups. One of our key partners is a relatively, you know, it is a startup. I think it's there on, they are on the sixth year of life. Uh, her, their name is um, Shareably. Right, they are a data aggregator, uh, and you know we have a great partnership with them. We partner as well with uh, other startups. One other that comes to mind uh, is Cortex. It's the way that they, it's a company that reads. You know, they do uh, they do video and image analytics for us, right? So they scrape the internet for not just words, but, you know, they are able to read images and videos. So it allows us to understand, for instance, should a food ad not have people, right? Should somebody be eating the cookie, not eating the cookie, right? In terms of recipe content, what worked better? It was when, you know, it was, as you know, there was, I don't know, it was savory, it was sweet, sweet. So, I mean, they, they read data for us and, and the other startup aggregates data for us. So, I mean, these are just two examples, you know, of uh, startups that we work with, but we are constantly talking to innovators, originators, you know, to understand what is out there and people that can help us with our unanswered questions. Awesome. Dennis, this next question from the audience is for you. How can a brand or a big company use your data to make decisions? If you could perhaps use a specific brand as an example. So I'll give you an example. So we have the top 25 retailers in America. We've mapped every one of their locations to every school in America. We know when the school starts. And by the way, school starts at a different time in 2021 than it did in 2020. And also, depending on where the school is, it may have been virtual a year ago and maybe isn't today. Just to give you one example, big sporting goods actually is going to heavily index against parts of the country that a year ago during back to school were virtual. I'm not entirely sure what means that, as opposed to academy sports, which is a competitor, a regional competitor, mostly in the South, schools were mostly in person. So we do that. We can do that for any retailer, any location. And our clients use it internally to be able to forecast demand, to be able to say, all right, this is a part of the country that was virtual a year ago, or was it? And they can also obviously sit with their trade accounts. We've got one client who my joke to him is I think it's his only thing he does is take our information around to his top accounts and coach the retailers on say, hey, school's starting at this time. We compare to 2020 and 2019. If 50 million K through 12 kids go to school. There's basically the same amount of parents. It's the second biggest retail event behind holiday. And it's unlike holiday, which you can pretty much map to Thanksgiving and Christmas with a certain behavior. It's totally different. So we work with, we're working a lot of office supply companies, sporting goods, and like just around the back of the school. And we can do this with any brand whose behavior or sales is dependent on schools being special. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for sharing that example. Here's a question for everyone. There is so much data. Internet of things and digital means we are measuring everything. How do you separate signal from noise? So... 
For me, I'm just going to talk about it from a personal point of view because you know I think everybody has a different approach. But for me, I really try to stay focused on what is the question I'm trying to answer. And during that process, the process of figuring out how I'm going to answer that question, doing my best to be open to different sources of information, doing some exploration online uh, to to see maybe if there's a case study out there, if it's something new and I'm trying to uh, solve for something that hasn't been done before. I would say it's, for me, it's been some trial and error. You know, what you try, what I end up doing is trying to make the best decision possible without wasting any resources and reaching out to others in the insights and research community that I've come into contact with and have stayed in touch with because, you know, I'm sure I'm not, in some of these cases, I, I know I wasn't the first one to try to answer these questions. <laughs> And, uh, you know, having that network to be able to sort out the wheat from the chaff is really helpful and actually can get you to a starting place that's much further along than where I would have been if I hadn't reached out. Christina? Yeah, very good points. I mean, so what I try to do as well on top of what Marty was saying is to separate the noise from uh, the valuable, you know, insight of valuable data sources is first try to validate. Right. Try to validate the data. Right. Try to see if you know what you're getting. It's really indicative of whatever you're trying to measure. Right. To understand the value. And the second is understand how actionable it is. Right. Because I can get hourly data on who is watching. You know my television ads. Can I do something about it? I can't. You know, I can't. So it's like, uh, what is the actionability? Is it is it worth, you know, going that extra mile? You know, how often do I need to look at certain things, right? I think that a few years ago, when we first started to get, you know, engagement data, yada, yada, we created dashboards. And oh my God, we're going to, you know, and then we would look at it that all the time. And we we're like, okay. <laughs> we're not reshooting this creative every hour. So, what, you know, it's like, so there are adjustments that you can make to your media buy, to, you know, and so forth. But it's like determining the level of actionability. And then you can be like, oh, okay, so this data, great, can't do much with it. So maybe I don't need it, you know? I'm laughing because you're reminding me six, seven uh-huh. years ago when I was working in digital media mm-hmm. and, you know, every leader said, give me the whole dashboard every yeah. hour. And you're like, no, like that's a terrible idea. So I love that actionable, what you can take action on and sufficient volume of data too, because until you hit a sufficient volume for some of the brands that have such skill, mm-hmm. you're getting directional information. It's not really valuable for you. Yeah, Dennis, I'm going to invert this question a little bit for you because I want to get your point of view on it. How do you identify the right data that is a signal as opposed to, you know, you might get asked like, when do the school guards start crossing kids across the street. I don't know. I'm making stuff up, right? But you might get asked for a data source that you could find, but you don't necessarily think it will be a correlative so or I'll, predictive. Yeah, I'll think I'll speak sort of as a vendor, but when I talk to our my clients, I I'm very transparent. Getting our data in the market to see how it works with other data is the number one thing. So early on we were working with academics. We were used in some of the seminal studies around COVID in schools by Harvard and Tulane because we were tracking whether schools were open. If a client, if, we, if I feel like a client's going to put our data in the market, it reflects how I price it, which means if I think it's going to close faster and get in the market, I'll price it as aggressively as I can. 
just to get it working. And obviously, there has to be some value to them for us to make it work. But getting it into the market is really the most important thing to try and get the correlations. Obviously, with stuff like school activity, it's fairly easy to pinpoint. You try and ask about some of the metrics I was talking about earlier, tracking activity level. I will say one of the challenges was us, what I was saying earlier about, I was surprised at how local is not really local. You know, when I when I talk to all the ad networks about, hey, we know when school starts in every little town in America, try to activate that into the advertising digital ecosystem is surprisingly uh, tricky because it's not really set up like that. So what you end up doing, back to what I said a moment ago, is trying to figure out a pressure point to get it activated. And so one of the exciting things for us is we get used by a lot of different decisions, a lot of different people in the process, everyone from sales to marketing insights. But the most important thing for us is to just, just keep getting it into the market so the people can use it. And for us, triggering retail activity and retail planning is the most important thing. And we've already had lots of studies that kind of show that if you use this information, you're going to be able to predict revenue. And that's what our, our numbers have done for the last year with our clients. They say, all right, your information around school activity maps to our sales. Therefore, in the future, we can use that same equation. Thank you for that. Christina and Marty, we have another question coming from the audience for, for you both specifically. There has always been friction between brand and retailer on sharing data. How do you all see that evolving over the next five years? A, do you think this is an accurate assumption? And B, how do you navigate it? Yeah, I think it's an accurate statement. And it, you know, right now at Instacart, we're sitting in the middle of it, right? So our customers are both brands as well as the retailers. And so I think at the end of the day, everybody realizes that they have to work together, right? So it's, yes, there's a protection, uh, there's a sense of protection for proprietary data. But at the same time, retailers know that they heavily rely on brands for insights, especially category-specific insights, because the world of retail just moves uh, so fast every single day. And you know, manufacturers have a little bit more time. I'm not saying they have a lot more time, but they have a little bit more time to help put together learning agendas that, that will enable their retailer partners to understand their perspectives and point of view on the categories that they're working in and how to best activate that within the retailer. So I, I do think, you know, at the end of the day, everybody understands that it's a partnership. You know, certainly there were, exa- there were examples I could point to where it was uh, more transactional versus genuine uh, learning. But I think that is, those days are hopefully uh, getting further behind us because people are going to go farther together. And um, that means sometimes you just have to be willing to open up a little bit and share information that's going to help you both achieve your goals. Mm-hmm. Christina, Bondelis is certainly a category leader in snacking, cookies, crackers. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? I mean, how do you collaborate with retail partners to understand these, these data sources and utilize them in your learning agendas? So... The sales data, right? I mean, from retailers, we have very few that are not really not willing to share what they know about their customers. Very few. Costco, Aldi, Trader Joe's. I I think I can count in one hand. All the others, they have been trying to monetize data in, in all ways, right? I mean, like they sell us the data so we can better understand their shoppers and cater things to their shoppers, but also 
more recently, like last year, we bought audiences from Target, right? We bought audiences from Kroger, right? So they're trying to monetize that data in any way they can. Uh, so I, I know just very few that for now, they are not willing to, to sell you know, the, their data to us. We have two minutes left. And I want to ask, this is a great question to end on. This is an audience question. What are you most excited about in terms of the future of data or insights? I think for me, it's you know because I like being in positions where there's a focus on the end shopper or the end consumer. And so what always excites me as I get exposed to new things, like every week, it seems, is the ability to influence decisions that at the end of the day are going to make things better for the shopper online, for our customers. I just really enjoy working with information that uh, provides actionability. I mean, Christina brought that point out. I mean, absolutely. And seeing those recommendations come into action in different ways because we have new tools, because we have new ways of measuring. And it just, you know, for me, that's that jazzes me up, you know, it gets me going, it helps, you know, makes me look forward to coming into work. <laughs> I compare the data market a little bit to the video. I grew up in the era of five TV channels and then went to cable TV. And then all of a sudden you could watch sort of what you thought was obscure video. And now you can watch anything everywhere. For us who built a very intense data set and we, we built a data set no one cared about for reasons that no one was investigating. And now we're sitting here going, look at all these various distribution platforms that are out there, all these different ways for us to get these very specific pieces of information and get them working in the market. Obviously, we will be adding other forms besides the ones I've described today. But for us, it's the way the market is coming together in terms of the way to be able to get the information that you have and put it in the hands of decision makers such as Christina. Thank you for that, Dennis. It's very interesting too to compare it to video. Think about the potential fragmentation of the data landscape as well as the ability to hyper-personalize. Christina, if you would close us out with your thoughts. Sure, absolutely. So I am excited about, you know, we talked about having a lot of data and I mean, but a lot of insights that we didn't have before, to me, will continue to enable empowerment, right? We will make better decisions, more agile decisions, and the decision will be pushed down at the lower levels, right? Because I mean, many times it gets surfaced because you don't have enough information. So the decisions are made at a higher level. The more, you know, the more you can measure early and often, you know, you lower the risk. Decisions can be made at lower levels. We all, you know, empower our people and we move faster and make better decisions. So the future of data is bright. The future of insights is bright. (laughs) Fantastic note to end on. Dennis, Marty, Christina, thank you for joining us today. Thanks to everyone who participated on the Philo platform. We'll look forward to seeing you next month. Next month, we'll actually be doing a focus on groceries. So we'll uh, look forward to seeing everyone again soon. If you enjoyed the show, please hit subscribe wherever you listen. Also, go to LinkedIn at VentureFuel. This is where we drop all the information for upcoming events, as well as insights from our visionaries, founders on emerging technologies and breakthrough startups. We look forward to uh, seeing you there. And uh, until next time.